Welcome to the Troy Kearns Podcast. We talk all things real estate, business, and entrepreneurship. Today, I've got a dynamic individual with me. His name is Aaron Gordon. I've actually known him as one of the first mortgage guys I ever met when I moved to Las Vegas from Seattle. He's a super guy. And recently, I just started seeing him blow up on my TikTok feed. And so I said, let's get together and do like a live. Let's do a podcast. Let's do something. Here's Aaron. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Troy. It's awesome to be here. You know, I've known you for a long time. I've always thought you were probably one of the smartest guys in the mortgage business. You've always been ahead of the curve on marketing. So it's no surprise to see you roll through my TikTok feed. Can you talk a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up and what you do? Yeah, I'm a native Las Vegan, which there's not many. My folks moved out to Las Vegas when I was three years old. I'm about 57 now, Troy. So uh, they moved in there in 1968. There was nobody in Vegas when we moved there. I think it was like 40,000 people, 50,000 people. So grew up in Vegas and then, uh, you know, uh, went to USC, who has now joined the Big Ten in football, which is a massive, uh, incredible, incredible day, incredible night, incredible turn of events for us. Came out of USC. I thought I was going to be a, a broadcast journalist. I, my, my goals were to be a sportscaster. And uh, I, I was in marketing and TV and all that for, for a decade and then uh, about actually two decades almost. And then. I ended up in uh, the mortgage business. My brother-in-law, who you know, got me in the mortgage business. And, and it was interesting, Troy, because when he was trying to get me in the mortgage business, uh, I pushed back at first. because I was like, finance, that's boring. I'm a marketing guy. I don't really want to deal in finance. And so, uh, but it, it's been, uh, it's been a, a great career. I've been doing it now over 20 years. Uh, I started as a very small correspondent lender. That's kind of like a mortgage broker type of lender. Uh, moved on to when the mortgage crisis occurred, I went over to Countrywide. Countrywide only stayed open about another year after I got there. And then B of A bought us. And then I was at Bank of America for about eight years. And then uh, went on to Guild Mortgage where I am today. And uh, I've been a branch manager for the last about 15 years of mortgage. And, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a great career, been a great run. Sweet. I appreciate you saying that. So that that's kind of where I met you. I met you when you were at Countrywide Financial, which yeah. is where I got my start. But you've always shared knowledge. And now you're out there on TikTok and you're sharing knowledge with a ton of people. And right before the show, we were talking about like a couple of things. You mentioned that your daughter actually got you onto TikTok, but now you're posting all the time. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, Troy, it goes back to the very first days I got in mortgage. So when, you know, I knew marketing, I was a marketing guy. And so what would happen is as I was learning mortgage, I was learning the mortgage business, um, things were interesting to me, like, you know, new loan programs or loan guidelines, things that were that were new to me, not new to the world. I would share that because I was excited by it. So I would share it with agents. And, and my biggest thing was, was that mortgage and real estate was so complicated to me getting in it that I had to kind of dissect it for myself and try to understand it you know, ask a lot of questions to try to understand terminology and everything. So what I decided to do back then was try to just make it very easy to understand with my customers and with agents. So all my marketing was designed around making it very easy to understand what's happening in real estate and mortgages. So that type of marketing always kind of carried through. And at first it was email marketing and newsletters and postcards and just being very informational. I always felt like when I was marketing myself, if I could provide great information, people would trust me and uh, and know that that's how I would talk to them all the time. And so that that's so that's kind of carried its way through this thing, Troy. Like going into TikTok is really no different than what I've been doing for twenty years. I just what I what I basically do is I take whatever's topical today and dissect it myself, 
make it very easy to understand, and then boom, roll it out on TikTok. And so I made a commitment last year to do TikTok primarily because, you know, somewhere around 30 to 40% of all buyers today are millennials. The millennials are, are, are driving our market. And here I am a 55, 56 year old guy at the time, now 57. Uh, and how does a millennial relate to me? Right. And, and how do they trust me and, and uh, are just a young person in general. And so I said, you know, I'm gonna try TikTok and I'm gonna do Instagram too. What was cool about it was because the video length was the same, you know, so TikTok let you go to a minute if, if you're new, and then Instagram Reels would let you go to a minute too. So it was kind of easy just to kind of do them both at the same time. So, but what was interesting, Troy, what you said is that, you know, I was probably doing it about a month. And one of the things that you know about social media, and Troy, you're, you're a social media expert. I mean, you have far more followers than I do. But one of the things that, that you know is that you got to be consistent. And if, you're, right. if you deliver a consistent message, you'll find an audience. As long as you're somewhat entertaining or providing some kind of information, you know, the, the social media platforms reward you for content. And if they know you're consistent and delivering it all the time, as long as you're not a complete knucklehead, you probably build, you build some kind of audience, right? So after about a month, uh, I didn't build much audience and uh, I was getting a little bit discouraged. And, and it does take a little bit of time out of every day. And right. uh, it was a commitment. It's definitely a commitment. And so having lunch with my daughter, she's 23 years old. And she said, dad, you know what? Uh, you popped up on my TikTok. She wasn't following me. I, she was, you popped up on my TikTok. And I really loved your messaging and I would get a mortgage from you. And normally, you know, I wouldn't get a mortgage from somebody your age. I'd look for somebody my age, but you seem like you're trustworthy and you're relatable and you explain things. Well, I'd get a mortgage from you. And then, and then it was like, my daughter never gives me compliments, Troy. In 23 years, like that may have been one of the only compliments I ever got from her. But it, it really kind of kicked me into the next gear of, wow, you know, that's exactly what I was going for. So it, it pumped me up to, to know that that was it. And now I'm up to a 23, 24,000 followers on TikTok, 21,000 on Facebook, a um, few thousand on Instagram. So, you know, I'm building an audience and it's, it's, it really helps my brand because uh, like you and I talked about prior to this, I haven't really, you know, not really pushing myself as get, trying to get loans as I've been pushing myself, pushing the brand. I want people when they see my name to know who I am. I want them to know that I'm trustworthy and that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And you're definitely a trustworthy guy. That's one, one of the reasons I like it. Always been able to rely on you for honest transparency. We've closed a lot of loans together back when I, I, I don't know if I told you I gave up my license. And but oh, prior to that, as you, yeah, yeah. Prior to that, as you know, we closed a lot of loans together. And when you were on the other side of it, I was like, yeah, I'm fine with it. I don't care whatever else happens. I can work through it with Aaron, no matter how difficult it gets. One cool thing to kind of sidestep on is that like you stumbled into this career and this career has been very fruitful for you. In fact, you're, you know, most people are moving to Vegas and leaving California. You actually several years ago moved to California. Yeah. You know, one thing that I don't know if your viewers know about you, Troy is Troy was one of the top agents in all of Vegas for, for a lot of years. And, and, uh, especially when we were dealing with uh, uh, foreclosures. Troy was one of the, the top foreclosure uh, agents there was and really well-respected and closed with a, a tremendous amount of transactions. So Troy, I don't know what your biggest year was, but you were close with a ton of, a ton of transactions. 643. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's mind blowing, right? So in the whole market today in Las Vegas, I think they, there's like 2,500 transactions. So, so that's like 25% of, of everything done today. Um, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, so I was given an opportunity. Uh, I had been in Vegas my whole life and, and I was working at bank of America at the time during the, you know, so the mortgage crisis occurred and, and countrywide, uh, just went out, you know, and, uh, and bank of America, 
America absorbed countrywide. And, and Bank of America asked me to go run a branch in uh, Carlsbad, California, and then Murrieta, California. And uh, it was just really great timing. I was on the verge of being an empty nester. And uh, and so we did. I moved to the beach and and it was uh, it was great. It was a great run there. And I, and I was there for uh, probably five or six more years. And and then I then I uh, uh, went to Guild Mortgage after that. And the Guild Mortgage actually asked me to come back to Vegas. But at the time, I was I had branches in San Diego too. So I was going back and forth between San Diego and Vegas and running branches. And you know what's what's unique about it, Troy, is that this is like three years before COVID, and I'm not the most organized person in the world. I think I'm a good leader of people, and I run my branches well, and I run my people well. But I'm just not that organized. I have people that, that help me stay organized. Probably like a lot of you out there do oh, the yeah. same thing. People in your life that keep you organized. And so for me, so I, I had teammates in Vegas and I had teammates in San Diego. And I didn't know where I was going to be in a given week because it was kind of like whimsical. If I had meetings in one city, then that's where I would go. And I wanted to kind of have that not be not be that structured. And because, uh, you know, San Diego was amazing, had the beach and Vegas was my home. And so I just really didn't want to have this rigid schedule of, you know, Monday through Thursday, I'm here or this week I'm there. So I just left it open. Well, in order to run my business by keeping it open, I had to go to video. So like you said about lead early adoption, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy who orders, you know, the iPhone 13 the day it comes out and overpays for it. You know, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the guy who reads the, the, the list of the top 50 apps and goes through all 50 apps and tries to see which ones fit my life. So, so like you said, I introduced you to Hotels Tonight, which was an amazing app back then. So I started doing remote work and team meetings on video three years before COVID. I used a software called Blue Jeans. I don't even know if it exists today. Zoom probably dominated and knocked it out of business. It's probably still around. But so I was using Blue Jeans software three years before COVID and doing morning meetings with everybody and running our operation by video. And so um, uh, it really worked well for our staff, the staff that was on my team that could, that could work remote. And we just started doing that way in advance of COVID. So when COVID hit, at Guild Mortgage, where I where I am now and where I was then, um, we were leading you know national calls for about a month about how to execute remotely because we had already done it for three years and it really kind of changed my life. It changed my team's life and it was an amazing time then, Troy, because there, there was a lot of trust there, right? Because we were doing something pretty unique in mortgage. Um, by doing it by video all the time and having morning meetings and and pipeline meetings and all that stuff by video. But there was a huge trust factor there of how do you coordinate people and manage people when they're not at their desk. And so um, looking back on it, it was amazing for us because it really made, made COVID nothing. It's like you're the mother of reinvention, right? I mean, seriously, like you've always been a marketing genius. I didn't know your background before you just told it to me right now. When you told me that, I'm like, man, it makes sense because this guy's always been on the cutting edge. You've always had a team. You've always had systems. You say you're not organized, but it's obviously that you surround yourself with organized people, Aaron, because... I'll tell you what, I remember working with you where it was like, oh, you could not get to Aaron, which you always value your time. And I think that's another one of the things I really look up to you about is like, you have an amazing life and an amazing wife and everything. Like I've seen you travel to like, let's, let's take a deep dive into that. Like you talked a little bit in the beginning about USC becoming part of the Pac-10. It's like the first thing you mentioned, you are a diehard sports nut. You've been to more games than anybody I know, probably besides myself. I know we probably have that in common. 
So let's talk a little bit about why you love sports so much. And are you living in California now? Or are you living in Vegas? Or are you living in both? So I sold my place in California. I bought a place in Georgia. And now I'm back and forth between Georgia and uh, and Vegas. Wow. We are, we are, we've got like parallel lives. I'm living in Vegas, back and forth between Kansas City. You're in Georgia. And I know one of the last times I remember actually talking to you was when you were at the War Eagles Auburn game. I think that was the last time we actually talked. I don't know if you remember yeah. that, Aaron. I do. And you and you said your daughter went to that school and you had some awesome seats and you're a big Auburn fan. So how has sports uh, played into your life? So, well, so first of all, my wife went to Auburn and my stepdaughter went to Auburn. So, uh, so when I, when I married my wife or when I started dating my wife, I became an Auburn fan and uh, you know, I'm a USC grad. She's an Auburn grad. So luckily they haven't had to play each other yet. They almost played each other basketball last year. So that would have been, that would have been interesting. But uh, so you, you know, what's crazy about it, Troy, sports has always been a massive part of my life. My parents had no interest in sports. Uh, so uh, I had a babysitter, Troy, when I was about seven years old, I can remember it. And the babysitter would watch sports endlessly. And this is, you know, there was no ESPN the, when I was seven years old, you know, this is, that's 49, that's 50 years ago. There was like four channels on the TV, but whenever sports was on sports radio, she would listen to Dodger broadcast. I remember listening to Vin Scully at like seven, eight years old. She, and she was just a sports fanatic. And, uh, and so I just started watching it and, I, and it made me, it just kind of made me love sports. I just loved everything about it. And obviously I played a bunch of sports when I was a kid. And, and so growing up, really my, my main dream was to be a sports caster. I, you know, that was my, my dream in college. That's what I majored in. And uh, when I came out, I, you know, I, I, I was a sports producer at the ABC affiliate in Las Vegas. I, uh, I don't know if you know this part about me, Troy, but uh, there was a period of time there while I was a sports producer at Channel 13 in Las Vegas, ABC affiliate in Las Vegas, where I, I bartered time on an AM radio station called Kino in Las Vegas, which at the time was an oldie station. And I we bartered time on the station. And a, a good friend of mine was the was the weekend guy at the NBC affiliate. And he was also the, the voice of the Las Vegas stars minor league baseball team. So I recruited him and another guy to be on this sports talk show uh, that we did a few nights a week, three nights a week. And that was Colin Cowherd. And so that was Colin Cowherd's first wow. entry into sports talk radio. And so uh, he was doing TV and he was doing play-by-play at the time. And that's the path he ended up taking eventually was sports talk radio and once in a while, so if you listen to Coward, you'll hear him tell this story about uh, one night when Mike Tyson was fighting Buster Douglas and him and I were having dinner at California Pizza Kitchen and Buster Douglas was 32 or 33 to one odds to win it. And I'm making six bucks an hour uh, working like 60 hours a week, but getting paid for like 20 hours a week. Cowherd's making right. no money. And uh, and so I said, let's put $100 on this because I think Douglas is going to win. And uh, he, he, you know, if you listen to Coward, you know how convincing he can be. And uh, he talked me out of the bet. And, and the son fight was in Tokyo. <laughs> I know. And to this day, I'm still bummed about it, Troy. To this day, almost every time I talk to him or text him, I give him a reminder about that. But, you know, the fight was eight hours or nine hours ahead of us in Tokyo, wherever it was. And like two in the morning, I stayed up to listen to this fight. Uh, and I called him and said, man, you know, it cost us a ton of money. But so, uh, so yeah, so then, so that was kind of my path. And so, uh, and then ultimately what happens is for anybody that's listening to you that, that, that they want to be sportscasters or, or, or sports personalities or on the radio, 
it's like a minor league, major league system. So you have to start in smaller markets. And, and the challenge for me was, Troy, was that Vegas was a small market at the time, like ranked about number 80. But I was getting to interview people like Mike Tyson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and major league players. Here I am making six bucks an hour and I'm interviewing these guys in other locker rooms. I just, I, it felt so amazing that it kind of deflated me from going to a small market. So I, I kind of blew that one, but uh, it ended up working out all right. Yeah, that's cool, man. I didn't know that story. I wish you would have made that bet, but it could have changed. That could, you know, all, it, it, it boils down to like all these, all these decisions that we make in our life and where decisions and choices lead us. You know, you're, you're kind of floating around the globe right now. You're kind of a digital nomad, if you will. I think it's so cool right now that like, you know, technology has got some good things. It's got some bad things, as we know, like we, a lot of our privacy is stripped away from us. But I think it's very important to see that like one of the main takeaways that I wanted to talk about and kind of take a deep dive into right now, Aaron, is like how fruitful of a business is mortgage origination. I know that it's provided you and your family a, a very good lifestyle for a lot, a lot of number of years. And I know that it provided your, your brother-in-law a financial uh, powerhouse as well for a lot of number of years. And I wanted to talk to, you know, young people. I know that you actually have a team and you're always recruiting people. And I want to talk to Young people out there who are, I always tell people, if, you know, if you're looking to get into real estate, maybe you consider becoming a loan originator. Cause I felt like if I was to go backwards, even though I had such a successful real estate career, I felt that I fit more into selling loans and pushing paper a little bit more than actually going out and hawking houses. And yeah. can you talk to me about the potential of what guys make as loan originators? What are, I mean, you work with a lot of guys and you know, a lot of guys in the industry, tell me what the top tier is for, for loan originators. Well, I mean, you know what's beautiful about it is that it, it's a it's a job with no ceiling. There are loan officers in this country making three, four, five million dollars a year. That potential exists. I mean, so there's a there's a lot of people doing seven figures, you know, per year. Um, right now the business is down a little bit. I mean, we just came off the two greatest years in mortgage origination history. You know, when you have when you have mortgage wow. rates in the twos, you know, COVID created millionaires in mortgage rates in the twos. 18 million people refinance their homes, Troy, over the last two years. I mean, that, that's the greatest refi boom in history. Million, by a mile. 18 million people? 18 million people refinance their home. So, you know, it, it, well, so that, that, there's only 80 or 90 million financed homes. Let me, let me go backwards. That's why I like the loan origination game is not only do you get to sell the original loan, but when rates drop, you can actually go back and tell your customer, hey, you want to do a cash out refinance? Do you want to do a, uh, do you want to lower your rate and term? Do you want to consolidate debt? There, I mean, let's talk about the ways that you can make money as a loan originator. Yeah. I mean, there's all those. I mean, you, there, you have uh, you have habitual refinancers. You have people that want to refinance their house every year to either one, take cash out or, or two, to uh, lengthen their term or shorten their term. I mean, you know, if, you know, in, in mortgage, if you do a good job for somebody, you're probably talking about at least two to three more transactions in their life. So, um, in you in real estate, you know, and I had a real estate license early on in my career too. I remember a coach telling me, if you do a really great job, you end up with two transactions in a lifetime. In in mortgage, I mean, it could be five, six, seven, you know, pretty easily. And so, um, yeah, we don't you don't make the same type of commission that you do as a real estate agent, but at the end of the day, you you, you try to do some volume and you try to become known. It's, a, it's an amazing opportunity for young people, Troy. We don't have enough young people getting in our business. And, and you know, and I coach loan officers too. I, we haven't talked about that, but I help lead Guild's coaching program. So I coach loan officers too. And, and, and I always tell people that 
Everybody got in a mortgage the same way. None of us went to college to be mortgage loan originators. Look, I just told you my whole story about how I wanted to be a sportscaster. Nobody went into it trying to be a mortgage loan originator. What happened to all of us was we met somebody in our life who was doing well in mortgage and we're like, that dude's a knucklehead and he drives a Porsche. Like I'm going to go do what he does. Right. It's like, like literally you ask every, every loan officer in the country, like, do they have a similar story? They all have a similar story. So you don't have to have a, a background in finance. You got to pick it up in a hurry. I mean, you, you, you do gotta, you do gotta learn it. I mean, you have to provide great customer service and you have to learn the business and uh, it doesn't take that long to learn. And, you know, I would encourage young people to, and, and it's, and it's a job with no ceiling. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, you can, you're going to go hungry some months. If you don't close a loan, you can have a goose egg. And, uh, you know, and, and you may not make anything. But, you know, the average loan officer makes somewhere between a half a point to a point and a half on a loan. So, you know, on a $300,000 loan, the average loan officer makes somewhere between $1,500 to $4,500, depending on where they work, depending on their compensation plan. Those are kind of the averages, okay? So it doesn't take a lot of loans to make a decent living, right? When you when you think about those numbers. And if you do a great job, your customer will call, like you said, Troy, your customer will call you for, now rates are rates right now are at a 14 year high, but what? But every experienced loan officer like myself will tell you today's six and a half percent rate or 6% rate is tomorrow's four and a half percent refi. Right. Because one thing we know about rates is they go up and down. And no matter what anybody's economic opinion is, even if they think it's going to take 10 years or 15 years or whatever, rates will come down at some point. They will come down and they don't have to come down a lot. When I first started in the business, people thought that as long as you could save a half a point of interest, it was worth doing a refinance. It's changed a little bit because of how how volatile rates have been over the last few years. Um, but generally, saving a half a point of interest. It makes sense on a refi if you're going to be in the house a while. And so, you know, if you got a, a new loan today at 6%, is it going to go down to five and a half at some point? Of course it will. I mean, it's not a certainty, but I'm fairly certain based on the history that, uh, that I've been in the business 20 years. So so being a loan originator is is, an ama- is amazing. One thing I do want to talk about, Troy, is that you asked me about you know my lifestyle and and you know, I travel a lot and I and I and I work remotely. Like you said, there's so much amazing technology. But people are afraid of technology. Like, you know, that's the one thing that I haven't been. And so, you know, when video came out to to be willing to run my team by video, and it worked out really well. People are fearful of if I'm not in the office next to them, they're not going to work as hard. Well, I can tell you from experience that when I opened that up to my team to let them work from home, they were so appreciative of that opportunity that they worked harder, better, faster. We did more business. Because I did threaten them, and I, and I threaten them to this day of, if this doesn't work well, we'll go back to a more traditional model. We'll all go back to an office, right? I have no problem doing that tomorrow. If that's what it takes for us to function way better, that's what we'll do. But if we can function like this, let's do it. And so, so many people, you know, and, and COVID created this for, for everybody to do it. Now, you see these big companies trying to bring everybody back in for efficiencies. I'm not sure if that does improve efficiencies, you know, maybe in certain businesses it does, um, but it really, it comes down to control. So I think that if you can allow technology to come into your life on the business side, you can have whatever life you want. You can have more work-life balance. I appreciate that answer, Aaron. Um, I want to do some rapid fire questions that are going to become TikToks because these, these are things that I know that people will be very interested in hearing a expert like yourself, Aaron, explain this. So I want you to break down what an FHA loan is for us real quick. 
FHA loans a government loan. So the government, the government only does certain types of loans. FHA is one of them. And so it's a government backed loan. Um, what's cool about FHA, FHA was designed to be a first time home buyer product. You don't have to be a first time home buyer pro- anymore, uh, but it's designed for that. So it's low down payment, three and a half percent minimum down payment. You don't have to have reserves. Um, your credit doesn't need to be great. Some lenders like my company will do an FHA loan down to a 540 credit score. Most lenders will do them around 600, 620. It's the best loan program for first-time home buyers. It's the best loan program for people that don't have a ton of money. The challenge the past year or two has really? been sellers don't want to see those offers, but you know that's all coming back, Troy, I think. I mean, you're probably starting to see that too, that more and more as inventory gets bigger and sellers take, you know, people were selling their homes in five hours. You know, if it takes you seven, now it's like it's 17 or 18 days. When it gets back to a normal cycle of 30 to 40 days, FHA will be back. So that's that's the deal. FHA is an amazing loan program though, because it's not credit sensitive. The other part about it is, is that, you know, if you have a 620 credit score or you have a 740 credit score, the interest rate's the same. When you're doing conventional financing, there's credit score adjustments. There's risk-based adjustments uh, on the loan. So every 20 points on a, conventional loans could change the interest rate a little bit. On FHA, generally, most lenders, uh, there won't be any any change there on the rate. Could you also uh, expand on like the um, ability to borrow more? Isn't, I forget what it's called, uh, Aaron, when you are able to leverage more, like there's certain ratios on FHA, right? That you can borrow like yeah. like 52% or something like that. Is that it, correct? Yeah. You could go to 50, 55, 50, all the way up to 56%. So 55.9% is generally the max uh, on the back end ratio. So that's where that's- We're talking about ratios. What are we speaking speaking of just so the audience is clear? So your debt to income ratio is a a totality of all your debts that mortgage lenders count. So we count things on your credit report. So like your credit card payments, your car payments, your student loans, um, installment debts, recurring debts, all those types of things that show up on your credit report they get counted in terms of your expenses, okay? Then you take your house payment with principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and HOA, and that becomes an expense. So those expenses are added, and then you compare that versus your income, so it's your debt-to-income ratio. And so FHA is the most aggressive. It allows you to go to 55, almost 56%. And whereas a conventional loan, conventional loan never above a 50%. And then conventional loans are always determined more by what the software tells you. Because you know, obviously technology runs everything. So when you go to apply for a loan with a lender, they run something called desktop underwriter or loan prospector. And they run you through origination software. And a conventional loan is a loan that's backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so they run it through their software and then they decide what your debt to income ratios can be. Sometimes if you have poor credit and lower down payment, they may not let you go past 35% debt to income ratio. But if you have really good credit and decent size down payment, they'll generally let you go up to 50% debt to income ratio. So it's really important to, to talk to a lender, you know, before you do any of that type of stuff. And, you know, really what you want to do is get your financial house in order before you go buy a house. So, you know, you want to, you know, if you don't make a ton of money, I mean, if you make a ton of money and you carry a bunch of debt, no big deal. But if you don't make a ton of money and you carry a lot of debt, you probably want to knock some of that down before you go home searching. But 
what I always recommend you do is don't try to pre-qualify yourself. Even if you have a lot of debt and low income, go talk to a lender. It's free. Have them pre-approve you and then have them put you on the path to buying a house. Like they'll tell you, they'll say, hey, you need to pay down for credit cards or we need to get your debts down to here. At least you know and you can you have something to work for towards instead of you just guessing at it. All right. So I appreciate your explanation on the FHA. I think that's a lot of people are like totally curious about how these loans work and stuff like that. Um, you know, let's say that I've got bad credit and I'm trying to get ahead and I don't know how credit works. What would you tell me as a credit expert that how credit works? Like what's the quickest way to bring my credit score up? If I don't have the money to pay down my bills, is there other ways to bring it up? The best way to get your credit score up is to keep your balances down below 30%. You will be shocked, okay, at how much your credit score jumps so, for example, if you have a $5,000 Visa card and your balance is below $1,500 and, and all your cards were at that same 30% or less, your score will be will jump incredibly. So that's, that's the most sure way. The next best way, if you don't have that type of money, is to just start working it down. You don't want to be like, you know, 70% maxed out, 80% maxed out, because that will affect your score. The, the closer you get to that 30%, your score will improve. Uh, the other thing that you want to do is you always want, you know, I don't want to sell you on any paid service, but at the end of the day, you should be monitoring your credit. Okay. I mean, like I, I subscribe to three different credit alerts because I, because I know how important that is three different services and credit karma is, is a good service, but the score is not indicative of what your lender score will be. So, so lenders use a certain type of credit score based on you buying a house, right? If you think about it, when you go buy a house, you're talking about dropping a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, a million dollars worth of debt on your report. It's a different risk than it is going to buy a car. And so as a result, your score is different. So credit karma doesn't really show you, and those services, most of those services don't show you that type of score. But what credit karma and the other services are amazing at show you that when things are working to drive your score up. Okay. So for example, if you pulled a lender report, your score was a 640, but on credit karma it was a 670 but I paid down a bill and I saw on Credit Karma, my score shot up to 680. Well, that's probably a good indicator that on the on the mortgage side or even buying a car, it, it went up there too, right? So those are good to monitor what's happening with your credit. The most important thing, Troy, is that it's, it's accurate because when you look at your credit report, it's always shocking, right? The first time you look at it after you haven't looked at it in a while of how many things are wrong, right? And so that's the first step. First step is get a copy. If you, if you don't have money to buy, pay stuff down, the first step is just get a copy of your report and make sure it's all accurate. And there's a million websites now that tell you how to dis how you can uh, dispute certain things or get things removed. And you got to be patient because it does take time. But the Fair Credit Act, uh, when you do make requests of the of the credit bureaus, they do they do have 30 days to to research it or knock it down or do whatever they're going to do. But at the end of the day, that's the first the first step is make sure it's accurate. You know, I think that's great advice. I'm going to take a, a jump backwards on that too. I think Aaron just gave you a lot of a lot of nuggets. So I'm going to expand on that a little bit. One of the things that I've found that's been helpful for me is to raise, if you can't, if you can't, if you don't have the money to pay down your balances, then try to get your credit raised and don't spend any more money. Right. And then the other thing I would add to that is the other thing is, like you said, like it's, it's crazy how one thing can set something off. I was trying to get a home loan out here in Kansas City, and we found out that Bank of America had rejected my payment. They didn't let me know about it, I, you know, obviously. And when we went to go pull my credit on a commercial loan that I was getting, I found out my score dropped by 250 points, which is a mortgage late, and it just crushed everything. And my my lender's like, I can loan you $2 million on this commercial property, but I cannot loan you the money you need to build your primary residence. 
And I'm like, that is crazy because of, the, as you know, the consumer lending is so much more difficult for people because it's tied to credit so much. Do you see credit scores and the Fair, Fair Isaac and FICO and all that stuff going away? I don't know that it's going to go away. I think that they're trying to tweak it to make it make more sense. Like, I don't know if you saw, you know, they, they, they recently announced that they're going to start counting more like your rental history. Like as a lot of people rent and then their landlords don't report that on their credit report, like most people, like most people, most landlords don't report your rental. But when us as lenders, we go order what's called a verification of rent. You know, so when you go get a loan and you've rented from somebody, we go verify your rental payments there. And then that helps us make our decision. But you should get some credit on your credit reports for that. I think that, that, that they're, all, they're working on that. And they're also working, and then Fannie and Freddie are working on ways to help, uh, if you have the good rental history, to help that with that desktop underwriter that kind of give you some more benefit of the doubt on that. So I do think, I do think that a lot of that is happening, but Troy, you hit the nail on the head. It is amazing how in lending, to give you an example, if you want a loan program that requires a 680 credit score, okay. And you have a 679 credit score. Most lenders are not going to give you the one point. You're not getting that loan over one point of credit. Now, some of them will grant you what's called an exception, but it's, there's 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 more lenders than not that won't grant you the exception and that will draw the line in the sand at that one point. So you got to go figure out how to get that one point back. And some lenders won't let you do a rescore if you're already under contract. So, you know, so th there's a lot there. That's why it's so important to get pre-approved and to talk to a lender about all this stuff and, and do all that stuff in advance, because it is insane how inflexible lending is today, primarily because of what happened in the mortgage crisis. But it, there was a lot of inflexibilities back then too. But today it's it's super strict, especially as you get to the higher loan sizes. If you want to do a jumbo loan, um, you know, it could be lying in the sand and sorry, you're declined for a loan if, if, if you try to cross it. And so uh, it, that's why it's just so important to, to meet with somebody in advance, get your credit in order and 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 go from there. Great, great answers. I really appreciate that. If, if somebody's trying to get a loan or somebody's trying to become a loan originator and they like this podcast because you're giving us, you're, you're dropping bombs over here, Aaron. <laughs> how did they get a, how did they get a hold of you? I mean, how did, how did, are, where are you at on socials? What's your email address? How would somebody who's looking for a loan get a hold of you? And how would somebody who maybe is considering becoming a loan originator because they're hearing all this that they can make three to five, six, seven, eight million dollars, ten million dollars a year originating loans, especially if you're in California or if you're in one of these income high net worth states where people have you know houses at one percent. If you're doing you know a house in Bellevue, Washington at one hundred basis points, you're making you know fifty thousand dollars on a loan. It's pretty easy to get to five million bucks pretty quickly if you're in the right sector. How do they get a hold of you, Aaron? So they can reach me by cell. You can text me 702-283-2333. Email is a Gordon A G O R. D-O-N at guildmortgage.net. And in all the socials, you know, on Instagram, I'm at uh, at Aaron Knows uh, Home Loans. On TikTok, at Aaron Knows Home Loans. Facebook, Aaron.Gordon.186. So I'm, I'm on Twitter too, Aaron underscore M underscore Gordon. So any of those, you can pretty much try the best way, just Google me, Aaron Gordon Mortgage. Be careful though, you got to put mortgage or you'll end up with the basketball player, Aaron Gordon, which was amazing when when that guy came up to the ranks, Troy. But so uh, how many Aaron Gordons are there in the world, right? So, uh, but yeah, if you, even if you just Google me, if you forget all this and just remember my name, Aaron Gordon, you should be able to Google Aaron Gordon Mortgage and get to me. Awesome. Okay, so cool. I want to ask a couple more questions and then wrap it up. So what do you compare? Like there's a couple zero down loans that are out there right now. One of them I promote a lot. It's not available for everybody. Both of them are not available for everybody. Can you break down both the VA loan and the USDA loan for our audience? 
Yeah. So the, the bottom line to it is VA loan. You got to be a veteran. So you have to have been a veteran. It has to be an owner-occupied property. And once again, credit score, not, not a very credit score sensitive program. Uh, once again, at Guild, we do 540 credit scores. There's a bunch of lenders out there that do 540, 560. Most lenders will do 620. So just be careful if you don't have great credit that you don't just listen to lenders as BA doesn't go below that number. You just got to go find different lenders. That's the other thing, Troy, before I go to USDA, if a lender tells you no, call two or three other lenders. Because lenders have what's called overlays to their guidelines, just because certain lenders do it. That was one of the things when I worked at big banks. Big banks are very strict about their loan guidelines. They don't like to stick their neck out there too much. Whereas mortgage banks, mortgage brokers, there's a lot more flexibility. So don't just get discouraged because one person told you no, or even two people told you no. Go out and find a third or a fourth. Ask them to be creative. See if there's any any other creative solutions. USDA zero down program is for rural. So I don't I, I don't do much USDA because we haven't had much rural in Las Vegas, uh, Troy. But it's a zero down rural program. If you live in an area with a lot of rural areas, and you'd be surprised at what the government classifies as rural. In fact, in Las Vegas, there's sections of, the, of town that are considered rural that you, you wouldn't think are rural, but they are considered rural according to the USDA website. So if you're interested in a zero down right. program that once again, not too credit score sensitive um, and very flexible, and you, li- and you live in a more rural place, just go on the USDA's website, type in your zip code where you want to buy it, see if it's eligible for USDA financing, zero down again there. So those are, those are the two most popular, but almost in every municipality, um, there are down payment assistance programs. So, it, so you know, I can't tell you what they are in your state. Um, but if you just simply Google down payment assistance and then your county, it'll bring up the down payment assistance programs that are in your county. And almost every county has them. Now, sometimes they restrict them when things start to get a little volatile, like they have in the past few months with interest rates and stuff. But they're, they're almost always in existence uh, because, it, because states want to offer low income housing or try to create homeownership. It's a little bit tough today, obviously, because because uh, values have skyrocketed, but you know, I see I see Troy on Troy's podcast really promoting Kansas City, and they have lower priced homes, and not everywhere around the country is has exploded like certain areas that are super popular because of remote work. So you know, if you're looking for a down payment assistance program, first place is just type in down payment assistance and the name of your county, and you'll see who pops up. Great information. So I don't know if you remember this, but one of the m- most amazing deals, and if you guys are looking to try to get a loan. Aaron, what states are you licensed in? I'm in California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, and Georgia. Georgia has a lot of rural loans, right? There is. There is. I got, I got to figure out USDA for Georgia. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing loan. It allows you, you know, I've sold a lot of properties in Mississippi with USDA finance. And I want to go back to something. The veterans loan, the VA loan is such a powerful loan. I don't know if you remember this loan, Aaron, but we were doing a deal back in the day and you called me up. You're like, hey, man. The guys had a short sale. The guys had this. The guys had that. You're like, I can get it done. The VA doesn't care about short sales. VA doesn't care about foreclosures. VA doesn't care about nothing. I could get the deal done. And I was like, are you sure, man? Are you just trying to like, you know, you know, there's some lenders out there that'll just throw mud against the wall. You're like, no, 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 Troy, I got this. And like, sure as shit, you got it. And you closed <laughs> that deal for me. I don't remember what property it was, but I definitely remember us having that conversation and you closing a VA loan with the person either had a foreclosure or a short sale and it wasn't even an issue. Well, the, the VA does care about them, but the timeline's way short. It's just two years. Everybody else, the foreclosure is like seven years, you know, or, or four years. You know, and so 
uh, depending on the loan program. So VA has the shortest time on that. So yeah, so that's what we were able to do that. One thing that I do want to tell you, if you're a veteran out there and you're struggling to get your offers accepted, be careful because you know, VA loans are zero down and you've earned that right. You, you know, your service has given you that right to that zero down. Zero down freaks sellers out and freaks out sellers, agents. Now you may have a ton of money. And generally, Troy, most of the veterans we do loans for, they have money. They just don't have to put it down. So what we recommend on our team, and it seems to work is, you know, show the seller that you have assets, you know, write a letter of explanation that, hey, I'm putting zero down because I'm a veteran and I've earned that right. And that's all my loan requires. But I have a hundred grand in the bank. I have 50 grand in the bank. So if the appraisal comes in short, I can pay that. If I had to put it down, I could put it down. See, because what happens is, is, is this, if you don't tell the seller that and the seller's agent, they automatically assume zero down person has no money, right? Because you haven't shown them anything to show you that you do have money. So you want right. to be, you know, whenever you're making an offer, you want to put your, your best foot forward. Showing zero down and asking for closing costs is not the strongest offer. But if you're zero right. down, paying your own closing costs and showing them, hey, you know what? I got $250,000 in a 401k. If I had to go reach into it, I could makes you stronger. So, you know, so the, and, and it erases some of that stigma of VA loan, which, which is bothersome to me, but it's just the reality of the market. All right. And kind of wrap things up. That's a great answer. Thank you, Aaron, for, uh, for elaborating on that. If you were talking to our, our audience is very young, right? And we know a lot of TikTokers are young out there. If you're out there and you were speaking to them, you could really get in someone's ear and you were to give them like they were your child advice about what to do to get ahead in life. What would that advice be from a smart guy like yourself? Show up every day, show up big, don't make excuses. If you're working for somebody else, don't challenge that person, right? I used to tell my buddies as, as I was coming up, Troy, and I was becoming more successful and some of my friends from high school and college weren't and they'd ask me for advice. I'd say, you know what? If you just show up to work every day and don't argue with your boss and do the job, at some point you'll have his job. And at some point you'll have the boss over his job, right? So if you become reliable, and, and you perform, and you don't have to, per, you don't have to overperform. If you do the job you were hired to do to the best of your ability and you do it well, and you show up every single day, and you don't call in sick when you shouldn't, and you just perform, just do what's asked of you, you'll be the manager, you'll be the boss at some point. Now, if you wanna be entrepreneurial, then my best advice for you is, is that the challenge when you work for yourself is regular hours. So if you're gonna be successful and work for yourself, it's an 80 hour week. It just is, you know, and yeah, I know you can take off today and go play golf at two o'clock, but you shouldn't. Okay. Not until you've really made it right. Don't go right. play golf until you've really made it. If you're, if, if part of the reason you got into real estate or mortgage is so that you have flexibility and now you're going to play golf every Friday at noon, chances are you're not going to be among the top people. You know, there will come a day. I promise you soon enough. If you grind it out, you'll be able to take off every Friday and play golf, but it's not in the beginning. That's excellent advice. I think that showing up, I hear that from a lot of people, just showing up is half the battle. And, and, and I know everybody's struggling that with today, especially as you as an employer, as somebody who's running a team, it's hard to get people to show up these days. Yeah. Aaron, I really appreciate all your time today. Um, is there any other last gems? Guys, if you, if you guys enjoyed Aaron, I certainly did. Make sure you give us a five-star review. Make sure you subscribe to this channel. Make sure you share this video with a friend. If there's anything else you could offer our audience in terms of guidance, what would else would you tell them? 
Well, one thing is, you know, I'm always available. I'm always happy to help answer questions. So if you, if there's any question that I didn't answer that you think that I, that, that you'd like to have me answer, feel free to reach out and reach out to me anytime. And like I said, for young people that they're looking for a career with, with no ceiling, I think mortgage is, is a great business. Um, we need young people. You know, it's, it's the average loan officer today is 56 years old. We, so we need young people. And if, if you're willing to, you know, work for a year or two and not make a ton of money, but know that, uh, you know, if you, you align yourself into a mortgage company, a mortgage branch, and you listen to the, what the guys tell you, the, the successful people, you know, Troy, one of the biggest tips I've ever gotten in life, and I, I know you subscribe to this is, you know how you be successful? You find somebody in your life who's successful and you emulate them. Copy what they did, right? That's the easiest solution. It works every time. And so if you're going to jump into mortgage or any, or in real estate investing or whatever, find somebody, find a mentor that you can just copy everything they do. Don't try to reinvent the wheel, add your little spice to it, but just follow what they did and don't make excuses. Like in real estate, when Troy was doing 600 transactions a year, whatever crazy number was, there's a lot of uncomfortable days. There's a lot of a lot of things that he had to do that were not fun, that sucked, that he right. and I deal with it every day. There, there are phone calls that I don't want to make. Somebody gets a loan declined or whatever. Right. How I hand, how I handle those calls grows my business. It's a bad day, it's a crappy day. But if I handle that call right professionally and make people feel understand it, I could still get more business out of those people. If I make if I avoid those situations, I'll never get more business from them. So, so it's really important that uh, that if if you go into it, you just go into it hard. You, you go into it, it full charge. You'll be successful. Awesome, great words of advice, Aaron. I really appreciate you spending your time with us today. I know your time's super valuable. I appreciate you putting up with my static internet connection a little <laughs> bit. I appreciate you. Uh, answering all of our questions. And I definitely appreciate you. You've been a great friend to me. I hope to see you soon. When we come down in Vegas, we'll have to do a podcast live together. It'll be a lot of fun. I've got a studio down there. Guys, uh, make, sure you, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you check out Aaron. Make sure you follow him on all his social. He's a dynamic guy. He's always ahead of the curve. Aaron, one last question because I forgot to ask it. It just came into my brain right now. What apps should we check out? What are you hot on right now? Oh, my, my favorite app. So my, I, my two favorite apps right now are I'm, I'm a big believer. So I told you, I coach people. I'm a big believer in starting your day in a positive way. I do not think that anybody in this world, no matter what your job should be starting your day with email. I think it's the worst way because there's, there's never positivity in your email. It's rare when there's an email that starts your day with congratulations. I just gave you a million bucks, right? Never yeah. starts that way. It's always problems in your email, right? So so number one, do not start your day in email. You got to start your day positive because that gives you the energy to face whatever that day is going to bring you, including crappy email, right? So my two favorite apps right now, Troy, are how I start my morning. Number one is the Calm app, C-A-L-M, Calm. Amazing app. Most of you probably have heard of it. I have that one. I love that one. That, it's an amazing app. And so I so I take a walk every morning and I listen to those those first affirmations or the meditations. So that's amazing. And then my, my second favorite app right now is Headway. Headway is an app where it takes every business, every motivational book that there is, and it doesn't just do an audio book version of it. It breaks it down into 15 to 17 minutes. That's it. The entire book is 15 to 17 minutes. So when people talk to you about books like Atomic Habits, and these types of books. Reading that you, one right now. Huh? You're, you're reading Atomic Habits? Yeah. Yeah. So you can digest it in 15 minutes, Troy, on head on Headway. And it, I love it, it, man. It, it, it's amazing. So like you could be working out, you can you can download like three books while you work out or take a walk and download two books. 
And you know what? What's amazing is if you go read the book, I'm telling you, Headway, they're so good at getting the most critical parts of the book in. Because, you know, a lot of times the best parts of books are the anecdotal. When somebody tell they tell stories. And a lot of times when you read these Cliff Notes versions, they don't include the stories. Headway makes sure they include some critical stories. So it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal app. It's allowed me to digest a lot of books. All right, Aaron, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Make sure you share it with a friend. Make sure you subscribe. And Aaron, we'll check you on the next one. Peace.